I'm starving, and I don't know why. You ever have, you just, you're just hungry? I am hungry. Maybe it was just because, you ever just, well, never mind. We don't need to go there. Okay. Ah, now, I love the fact that we sang one of the songs we sang this morning in regard to God's mercy. And in order for us to truly grasp what we're going to be reading today, that's exactly what I want us to have a feel for, is his mercy and his grace. What we're going to be doing, we, we've been doing is, if you haven't been here, oh, my name's Tony, by the way, and welcome to Mosaic. If you've never, never been here before, I'm one of the guys. Um, we have been going through kind of this amoeba-like series on entering into God's rest and his peace. And, and mostly for the last month or so, one of the things I've encouraged, you know, encouraged us all to do without, instead of giving a list of do's and don'ts, I've really wanted for us to just focus on the love of God and, the, and know the truth that we are loved in Christ Jesus. We are loved. And the true essence of the rest that we enter into when we have a relationship with God is actually knowing without a shadow of a doubt that we are loved. So, I kept having people ask me, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And I kept saying, slow down. The first thing I want you to do, the only thing you need to do is just trust that truth. And I want you to learn to rest in that truth. Today, we're gonna start looking at some of the do's and don'ts. Now, what about the do's? This is one of the things I wanna make sure we understand. There is nothing we can do to earn God's love. There's nothing we can do to diminish God's love. He loves us perfectly all the time. In Christ, we are loved, period. And there's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to diminish it. But there are things we do and don't do that can certainly diminish our ability to experience it or to cause friction in the relationship that causes us to feel like there's distance, just like in any other relationship. You know, all, you know these relationships we, we enjoy and work on here on earth are, are earthly expressions of kingdom truths. The kingdom truth is that we're loved, and in the process of that love, in order to truly experience and live out that love, and to be able to, to rest in that love in a tangible way, there are things we do to cultivate the relationship, just like I do with my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my friends, so it is with God. And so there's this beautiful plan that God has put together that he gives us tangible people to cultivate relationships with as an example of how we cultivate a relationship with him. And then how we love him is how we love others. And it just goes back and forth like this. So today's the first kind of do thing. But the first thing I want to make sure we all understand is this. God loves you in Christ Jesus. You rest in his love. If you have a relationship with God in Christ, he loves you. He loves you completely and he loves you eternally period. And there's nothing you can do to extinguish that. There's nothing you can do to diminish that. There's nothing you can do according to Romans 8 that can separate you from this love. It is true, it is real, and it's for good. And the reason is, is because it's not established by me and you. It's established by him. I love because he loved me first. Not only do I love because he loved me first, because he loved me first, he loved me first when I was his enemy. So when I was far from him, when I was distant from him, when I was opposed to him, he still loved me. And drawing, my, drawing, him, drawing me to himself in Christ, I now get to live and experience that love. Now maintaining that love, I have responsibility in. He's responsible for establishing it. He's responsible for keeping it. He's responsible for bringing it to its final conclusion when he comes and gets us and takes us home. In the meantime, we join him in the maintenance of it, just like any other relationship. So that's what we're beginning today. Y'all ready? So grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take, get one from the pew back in front of you. Go to, you can certainly get on version and, and look up the Gospel of Luke. We're gonna read a lot of scripture today. And you're going to need your notes. If you don't own a Bible, keep the Bible you just found in the pew back. If there's another Bible that would do you better, that's awesome. Let us know. We'll try to accommodate that. But we really want you to have God's word in your hands. So we're in Luke. We're going to be in chapter 6. Luke 6. Thanks. There you go. There's no pew back. Okay, so. 
Luke is the fourth book in the New Testament. So if you got off, you went, or the third book, excuse me. If you got to John or, um, or the book of Acts, you went too far. If you're only at Matthew and Mark, you need to go one more further. Okay, so we're going to be reading from Luke. I'm going to pray before we start, though. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. We thank you for, oh, golly, there's so much to know today. Thank you for your commands. Remind us, Lord God, even now as we read this, that your commands are not just rules and a list of do's and don'ts. Your commands are your, the expression of your heart and your wisdom to your children. In your commands, we find life and life abundantly. In your commands, we find victory. In your commands, we find encouragement. In your commands, we find affirmation. In your commands, when we obey them, we find peace. Remind us, Lord God, that your commands are not just this just kind of cold set of legal standards or some sort of list of do's and don'ts. No, this is the expression of your heart and your mind and your wisdom to your kids. May we receive it as such. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Luke 6. And you're going to see in a minute why I just prayed what I prayed. So here we go. We're going to start at verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. You ready? I'm all wound up, so you'll have to forgive me. So here we go. It says, but I tell you who hear me. This is Jesus speaking. Here's the first do. Love your enemies. Stop. Mm Love your enemies. Stop. Love your enemies. Now let me go back to the word command. That's what this is. This is not some theoretical, fancy, pithy way to live, to speak some ethereal way that maybe the kingdom will, no. This is the truth of the reality of what God calls us to. This is the expression of his life in us, to us, and through us. Love your enemies. This word love means to want the best for them. Literally, to want their best to do something to make their life better. That's what this word love means. It means to prefer their welfare. God calls us to love our enemies. Now, we're gonna look at this in a moment as to why God has the audacity, why he can have the audacity to command such a thing. But we'll, we'll wait for a moment. So it says, love your enemies. Then he tells us how. Do good to those who hate you. Do good. Express goodness to them. Do good to them. Do good to those who hate you. So we start again. It says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless or wish happiness on those who curse you. Bless them. Wish happiness for them. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Have an exchange of wishes with God for the object of your scorn or who holds you as the object of their scorn. Pray for them. Exchange wishes with God regarding them. Petition the Lord on their behalf. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now if anyone insults you or strikes you on the cheek, do not turn that back on them, but give them the other cheek. If someone strikes you on one tree, give to them the other also. If someone takes your, stop. Let's go back to verse 
27 again. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Stop. This is what I want to do. I want you to take a minute, grab your notes and a writing utensil, and I want you to take a moment in, in just silent prayer, and I want you to ask the Lord to reveal to, to, to use anyone who might be in these categories for you. Your enemy. Those who oppose you. Those who want ill for you. Those who curse you. Those who mistreat you. What I want you to do is I want, to ask, I want you to ask the Lord, is there anyone in my life who fits in these categories? And this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to put their initials, either, either just get a mental imprint of who they are or put their initials in your notes. Not, not the whole name. Nobody around you needs to know who this is. Who stands opposed to you? Who wants your demise? Who speaks of you in an ill manner? Who mistreats you or your reputation or name? Who curses you? Who is that person? I'll explain why I'm doing this in a moment. I mean, I just feel like I need to pray over this for a moment. Let's stop for a moment. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you, Lord God, for this person in our lives. I'm not sure how we thank you. I'm not sure why we thank you, but I feel like we should thank you. And I pray, Lord, that as this person or these people or this circumstance rises up in us, that we would offer it to you. We would offer that person to you. And you would give us, by your spirit, the strength to obey these commands. These expressions of your kindness, your love, and your, listen, your manner toward us. And may we be willing to follow. May we learn to trust you more. And may we exercise the commands you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, why did I have us do that? I had us do that because I want us to see that this is real. Jesus, again, Jesus wasn't saying something ethereal here. He wasn't, this wasn't some sort of theory on, on philosophy of life. No, he was saying, this is the truth. These are who these people are. They exist in front of you. And I want you to love them. This is real. He is calling us to do something very real. You know, at the beginning of the service, what did I say? Learning to love God is like learning to love each other. But luckily, blessedly, he's given us these, these tangible relationships to cultivate and to work on and to have to go back and forth in so that we know how to relate to him. He gives us those. It's no different with those people who oppose us. Do you wonder if anyone ever opposes God? Anybody? Those other people? who oppose God. Do you know anybody like that? Okay, we'll get to the other person in a minute, okay? So, we read on. Going back to the beginning. Woo! Falling off my stool. It says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop them from taking your tunic, or if somebody takes your shirt, don't stop them from taking your jacket. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Verse 32. Here's where it gets very real. You ready? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, notice it's in quotes. He uses it in quotes because this is a word the Jews would use to describe people who were like the worst of the worst. Tax collectors, public sinners, people who had terrible reputations. This is how the Pharisees would look at them. So look what it says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. And I want to stop here for a moment because I want us to understand what's happening here. 
Jesus is Jewish and he's speaking to the Jews and the Jews are under Roman oppression. And he's and mingled in this crowd are his own disciples, masses of people that just came to hear him speak and then leaders in Israel. And it's the leaders in Israel who perpetuated this word sinner, that if for some reason you didn't live a life that was particularly righteous, or especially if you lived a life of sin that was obvious and, and created a bad name and reputation for you, you were considered a sinner and you were almost unredeemable. And if you were poor, or for some reason you, you had difficulty exercising your, your, your right to worship in the temple, or your ability to bring the right sacrifice, or for whatever reason your life was in any way off skew, you were seen as less than. You were treated as less than. And you doubted whether or not God would love you. So look what it says here. This is who he's speaking to. So he's saying to all of them, I hear anyone who hears me in this crowd, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, stop. See, in this time, as Israel was under the oppression of Rome, what would happen is a Roman soldier could walk up, come here, my friend. If this is the head of a Jewish household in Rome during this time, or under, under, under the rule of Rome, and he were sitting at his table with his family, and they were about to enjoy their meal, a Roman soldier might come into his house and make him stand up in front of his family and command him to carry his gear for one mile. And what the Roman soldiers would do to the men of the community to try to incite them into a fight or to embarrass them or to bring shame to them is they would slap them across the face. This wasn't some, hey, if somebody happens to insult you to the group of people Jesus spoke to. These are people who were having their dignity stolen in front of others. These were men, and men who were trying to lead their families who were being slapped, who were being coerced, who were being forced into labor. And, they, and the Romans always made sure it was public. What Jesus is saying to these people is, I know what's happening in your lives. I know. I've seen it and I've experienced it. I know there are people opposed to you. And as you hit your wagon to my name and to my ministry, it's gonna get worse. So listen to me. Love the way your father loves. Love the way I'm loving you now. We'll get deeper into this. So if my friend, go sit down. So all of a sudden, verse 32 becomes very real. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you love, if you, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Verse 35. But I say, love your enemies and do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be what? Sons or children. Of whom? Of the most high. In other words, this demonstration will be evidence that God is with you and God is in you. Because you will now have treated others in the manner in which he has been treated. Or you will now love others in the manner in which he has loved you. Look what it goes on to say. It says, then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high because he is What? He's what? Kind to whom? Kind to whom? What's it say? To the ungrateful and the who? And the wicked or the evil. Ah, okay, let's stop there for a minute. So what did I have you do at the beginning of this? I asked you to think, okay, who, is, who fits these categories that Jesus would call me to love in what we might consider a very radical way? In a way that goes well beyond anything that the world would do. Remember, even a sinner would lend to a sinner and expect something in return. Jesus is saying, nah, get, 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 get. Are they there? Now let me ask us, us, me, this next question. Do you know anybody who has ever felt or behaved 
in an ungrateful fashion. You know anybody like that? You know anybody who's ever just received something and not been thankful or grateful or just taken it for granted? Anybody? Anyone know somebody like that? Anyone know anyone whose behavior can sometimes be wicked? Anybody know somebody like that? Let me ask this. Have any of us ever seen that person in the mirror? Anybody? Ah. See, this is where we're all put back on the hook. See, at the beginning, I asked you, who in your life is an enemy? Who is it that you're being called to love in such a way? And it's easy for us then to look out and go, oh, yeah. There are two things we miss on that. That sometimes, even without our knowing it, we could be on somebody else's list. That we have been an enemy to them. And then two, that even though I'm no longer wicked because Jesus' righteousness is in me, his spirit is in me, my behavior can still be wicked. And even though God has given me all that he's given me, I can still too often be ungrateful. And you know what God does anyway? Love me. Just love me. If you're taking notes, put Romans chapter two, verses one through two right here. That's a really important text for you to be able to refer back to. Romans two, verses one and two. So what I want us to see here is that we are all objects who, who, who need desperately God's mercy. Let's keep going. But love your enemies, verse 35, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful. Be merciful. Just as your father is what? Just as your father is what? Merciful. You be merciful like your father. You now, being a child of God, put Ephesians chapter five, verse one, right here in your notes. Ephesians 5, one. Be imitators of God, therefore, listen, stop. We can't stop there because none of us can imitate God except for this, as dearly loved children. Bless you. I have a new grandson. I like him. He's all right. Of all my grandchildren, he's one of them. Might even be my favorite. I won't tell the other five that. But you know why? He looks just like me. He is hideous. Oh, all the grandfathers are going, what? Grandmothers are going, hmm? Okay. He's beautiful. And when he smiles, it just beams. And when he preaches, you, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now he's an amazing little boy. I love him to death. When he smiles, he looks just like my son who looks just like who? Me. When he looks grumpy, he looks just like my son who looks just like who? Me. When he's hungry, he screams just like his dad, just like his dad, me. You know what this little boy never had to do? He's eight weeks old. <clears throat> you know what he's not had to do? Look at me and go, okay, now am I supposed to look like this or act like this or what if I do this or that or the other thing? He's not there. He didn't do that. He just is. He just does. Why? He's got my DNA. Poor kid. <laughs> he's got my DNA. Therefore, He's an imitator of his dad and his grandpa and his grandpa's dad, not because he's watched us and said, that's what I want to be, but because he's been born and that's what he is. And he can't help it. Guess what we are in Christ Jesus? Children of the living God. Guess whose DNA we got flowing through us? The Holy Spirit, which is the very spirit of the living God. Guess whose life is being formed in us? Jesus Christ, the very son of the living God. 
So when it says be an imitator, therefore, as a dearly loved child, we don't have to try. We just are. We do because he's our dad. And his, his DNA is flowing through us. The problem is when, we, is when we decide not to do. If we will just walk with Jesus, we'll do everything we're supposed to do because we got his DNA. When we cultivate that relationship, it just magnifies that. But there are moments when I dug my heels in and I said, I don't want to be like my dad. Anybody here? Look at their dad, dad, their real dad, their fleshy dad, and go, mm, that's not the man I want to be. And so you dug your heels in, only to find out a few years later, you can't help it, can you? And the older I get, the more like my dad I am, no matter how hard I try otherwise. Now, luckily, I got a good dad who's a good man, and that being manifest in me is not such a bad thing. But you know what's even better? I got a heavenly dad whose DNA is flowing through me, and the longer I walk with him and the more I cultivate it, the more like him I am without even having to what? Try. Is this making sense? And so when all of a sudden I've been shown mercy and I've received grace based on that mercy, when I deserve death and I deserve judgment and condemnation, my God said, no, I'm gonna call you by name and make you my own and insert my spirit into you and I'm gonna love you and make you my child. When he did that, he put me on a whole new trajectory. When he did that, he said, listen, I've made the tree good, now go bear good fruit. When he did that, in order for me to be bad, I almost have to try to be bad. Because I'm my dad's child. So when he showed me mercy and then filled me up, I cannot help but what? Show mercy. And so when I don't show mercy is when I'm not acting like my dad and that's the moment I have to turn around and say what? I'm sorry. I know better. Forgive me. For not, showing, for not showing mercy. <laughs> who, who is that little monkey? No, it's all right. Don't know. Nope. Anybody complains about, being a ba- about a baby is being a baby. <laughs> or they have forgotten that they were once a baby. I'll just talk louder. It's okay. Am I making sense today? Yes. All right. So we're going to go to Luke 6. We're in Luke 6, right? What verse were we in? Anybody else working up a sweat now? Anybody? Anybody? All right. Where were we? Oh, okay. So we're verse 35 again. It says, but love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything returned. Then your reward, when will your reward be great? When you do this. When will you benefit the most? When you do this. When will your relationship with God be greased and well and working in in good order? When you do this. Why? Because that's what he does. And when I do what my father does, everything goes well. That doesn't mean everything is peachy. That's different. But everything between me and me and him go well. And now all of a sudden I can rest in him and I have peace with him and my relationship with him is bearing fruit. Hmm. When did this, okay. But love your who? What's that saying? verse 35? Love your what? Enemies. Hmm. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and the who? And the wicked. Now keep your finger here. I want you to go to Romans, or yeah, Romans chapter five, if you would. I just want to make sure we see how how God can have the audacity to command us to do such a thing. You ready for this? I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. We'll see. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we've been made right with God by placing our trusting faith in him. We now have peace with God. We can rest in who he is in our relationship with him. We have peace with him through Christ Jesus who made this peace and established this peace. Through whom, this Jesus, we have gained access to God and this relationship with God by faith, by believing, into this free gift of life, this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That this is based on his character and his person, not my doing. I trust his goodness and his glory. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings now. We rejoice in our what? In our what? 
we rejoice in our sufferings? What are our sufferings? What do we just read in Luke chapter six? Now, in, in all seriousness, does anybody here have an enemy or ever been cursed by anybody? Or ever had somebody like perpetually just oppose you and be against you or speak ill of you or, and you just can't seem to get over that hump? You can't seem to get them, you can't, anybody? Is that suffering? Is, and, and if that is especially true because of who you are in Christ and the life that you live, not pointing fingers and accusing people, but just because you live graciously and lovingly and kindly and mercifully, just because there's a righteousness about you, a rightness about you that can cause others to not feel good about themselves, not because, again, you have pointed fingers, but because you have just humbly and contritely lived a life that looks like Jesus? Anybody ever been there? Hmm. Yeah. It says, therefore, we have been justified, made right with God, declared innocent by God through faith. And we have peace with God through Jesus, through whom we have gained access to this Father God, to this relationship, to the kingdom of heaven, by faith, into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces in us what? What's that next word? It produces in us what? Perseverance. The word perseverance attached to rejoice calls us to do this, to cheerfully endure our circumstances. To cheerfully endure our circumstances. In other words, we can know because God is working this thing in us and through us that as we, as we suffer and we return that suffering with, the, with God's mercy, with the mercy we ourselves have received. When we do that, we are being just like Jesus and he is being revealed through us. And as he's revealed through us, our character is now formed. Look what it says. It says, not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. This cheerful endurance produces in us, what's it say? Character. The very nature of Jesus becomes manifest in us. We are being, he's using these things to form and shape Jesus in us. And that's worth it all by itself. Anybody here ever want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? Well, that's what he's trying to show us in Luke 6. And, that's, and, and now he's showing us how he's doing it in Romans 5. And I want to be like Jesus. I think that's awesome. And if somebody somehow mistakes me with Jesus, I'm okay with that. Anybody else? Hmm. Here's the other cool thing about it that I think is even more profound. That not only is he doing in us what he promises, and that's to conform us to the likeness of Christ, but in doing so as Jesus is revealed in us and through us by cheerfully enduring our circumstances and bringing mercy to the unmerciful and treating our enemies with love and grace and mercy and prayer and blessing. When we do those things, not only are we conformed into his likeness, he's revealed through us, and guess what? Guess who gets to see it? Our enemy. And with any luck and God's grace, his heart, her heart, their heart will be changed. And what they won't see is me. They'll see Jesus revealed through me. And, they won't, and my good works won't be what's lauded, but my father will be glorified because their heart has been changed because they've seen Jesus in action because that's what he does when we obey. Isn't that beautiful? It's one thing, it's a beautiful thing to be formed in the likeness of Christ. It's an even more beautiful thing when that likeness actually speaks of him in such a way as to penetrate the heart of the lost and to bring them to the Father. And we get to be that vessel. That is our privilege as our Father's children. Is this making sense? Now the question is, when did he do it? How does he have the audacity to command me to love my enemies? Like he ever had to do that. Really, it's God. Does he really have any enemies? Psh. Let's see. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. This cheerful endurance leads to Jesus being revealed formed and revealed in us, our character. And that character, as we see it in the mirror, produces hope in us because it's confirming who Jesus is in us. It's revealing that God is actually working. We are growing more and more. So my hope increases. And what does that increasing hope do? Look what it says. 
and hope doesn't disappoint us. The truth of God in us and working through us and then manifesting in us doesn't disappoint us. In fact, it affirms us as his children. Look what it goes on to say. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts. And it, we see it bleeding from us. We see it leaking from us. We see it working through us. We see Jesus revealed as a spirit of love moves to us, in us, through us, into the lives of others. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see now, ready? You see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for whom? The ungrateful and the wicked, the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Verse eight, ready? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still what? While we were, quote, sinners, unquote. Christ died for us. It gets better. Since we have now been made right with God, declared innocent by the blood of Christ, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through the life of Christ? For if when we were God's what? God's what? Love your what? Love your what? You know what's so beautiful about this moment? If you've been here for a while, you know you've heard me say this before. God never commands us to do anything that he himself has not done. His commands are an expression of his person, his wisdom, and his love. It means they are the manifestation of his very nature. God loved me when I was his enemy. He made me his child when I was opposed to him. He showed me mercy when I didn't deserve it and gave me grace and gave me life. He rescued me. How can God command us to love our enemies? Because we used to be one. And he loved us anyway. He loved us. And now he's saying, I poured my spirit of love into you. The very spirit I loved you with when you were my enemy, I have now poured into you that you might love your enemy. I've made you my child so that spirit, which is my DNA, flows through you. And I've given you everything you need to be the imitator that I've called you to be, that I'm making you to be, to be able to do the works, the good works that I've prepared in advance for you to do. I'm creating you in Christ Jesus to do them. Now, there's a passage I have to get to. And then we'll go to communion. Go to 1 John, if you would. 1 John is near the back of the Bible. It's a tiny little book. You'll get to 1 and 2 Peter. Keep going, you'll get to 1 John. If you go all the way back to Revelation, back up four small books. Go to chapter three, if you would. Band, go ahead and get in place while I do this, please. Ready? Verse one. You ready for this? It says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, poured on so richly, so generously, that we can no longer, we can't contain it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? children of God, and that is what we are. Go to verse 16, if you would. So this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. He gives an example. If anyone see, has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
In other words, when we see somebody in need, when we know someone who is close to us and we perceive their need, and we know we have the means, or we know someone who has the means to meet those needs, and we are not alerted to, we can't, we, we, we see it, we, we recognize it, but for whatever reason, compassion does not well up. The, the idea of comfort does not come. We hold back that which we have. Look what it says. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, not, let us not love with mere words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Remind us, we should pray, Lord, that as I live my life as an imitator of you, as your dearly loved child, when I offer mercy the way you offered mercy, improve myself, show myself, show the evidence of being your child. Lord God, remind me that, that those actions, those attitudes, those things are what give me now permission to actually speak. That I earn the right to be heard in sharing the gospel by having already lived the gospel. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Listen, this, this is, here's the primary, you ready? Primary verse for the entire morning. You ready for this? Verse, seven, verse 19, look at this. This is how we know or can be convinced or can be affirmed that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at what? At rest in his presence. How? By the doing. Having cultivated, the, having received mercy, grace, and love from the Father, having a spirit poured, of love poured into us, now being an imitator of God as a dearly loved child, and offering mercy where mercy, doesn't, where mercy isn't merited, offering grace where it is not merited, treating others according to how we would want to be treated, by loving our enemies the same way God loved me as his enemy. When we do these things, it is evidence of Christ's life in me, and I'm now affirmed, I'm confirmed, I'm confirmed, and now I'm confident. And when I'm confident in those truths because I see them manifest in me, because I'm obeying the commands that I see, my heart's at rest. Let me finish it with this last part. It says, verse 19, it says, this is then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts do what? What's it say? Whenever our hearts do what? Condemn us. Stop. Anyone know what a conscience is? A conscience is the part of the spirit in us that tells us when we've either done or not done the right thing. That when we've seen and know what we ought to do and don't do it, or seen what we ought, you know, what we ought not do and do it anyway, the conscience is the part of the spirit that rises up and speaks to our hearts. It says to us, dude, hey. And at that moment, we feel, listen, we feel condemned. Our hearts are condemning us. That doesn't mean we are condemned. We are children of God, righteous, holy, forever. But we feel condemnation. And the reason is, is our, our, our conscience is doing what? Convicting us. It's revealing to us something we've done or not done that we should have done or should not have done. We can trust, what's the next verse say? We can trust this, that God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than the condemnation of the heart. So God protects our heart. This is not true condemnation, but it's the feeling of condemnation. And what that does is it causes us to lack confidence before God, and we can no longer rest in his presence. Not that he isn't present, we can't rest in his presence. And the fact that our conscience is bugging us is proof that God is present. Does that make sense? So you've not been banished from his presence. In fact, you're right in his presence. What you aren't is at rest in his presence. How do we enter his rest? First, by obeying. But if we don't, we ask forgiveness. Our heart's condemning us. We can trust that God is greater than our hearts and he's given us a way out. Go to John, 1 John chapter one. And this will lead us to the table and to prayer. Go back to 1 John chapter one. What happens when we blow it? What happens when we mess up? What happens when we knew the right thing to do and we didn't do it? Or we, we knew what we shouldn't do and we did it anyway? And our hearts are now, ah, 
shoot. Here's the beauty of it. Verse nine. Verse eight. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and just. He has obligated himself to. He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and do what? Purify us from all unrighteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will what? They will see God. They will be at rest in his presence. When our hearts become adulterated by sin and we don't confess it, we are present with God, hence the conscience feeling the way it does, but we cannot rest in his presence. We cannot see him through this. We turn our face away. Look what it says. How do we restore peace? How do we experience Christ Jesus tangibly? Look what it says. It says, if we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and, if, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I don't want you to sin. I want you to do right. I want you to live out the life that God has put in you and the, and the DNA that flows through you. I want you to do that. But look what it says next. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the one who atoned for our sacrifice, for our, excuse me, he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the world. That he stands before the Father, having paid the price, and those people who have placed their faith in him are now prayed for to the Father on their behalf. And he stands there, continually defending us. How do we rest in God? First, we recognize his love for us. Second, we recognize that his commandments are the expression of his loving grace. Third, then we obey out of love. And in reciprocating that love, we obey those commandments. In obeying those commandments, we rest in him. He is revealed through us. We become a living testimony to the world. And then when we do sin, when we do fall short, when we stop imitating our father, choosing not to, we turn back to him and ask his forgiveness, confessing our sins and trusting that he is greater than the condemnation my heart is speaking to me, that he restores me to fellowship with him. We are always in his presence. That's the conscience is telling us that. But sometimes our heart is impure in his presence and that's what the conscience is telling us. And so we confess, we receive forgiveness and we are restored to fellowship. And we move on in peace, having re-entered the tangible rest of God. Does this make sense today? This is huge. So many of us are living bound up with stuff because we, we, we don't understand God's commands. We don't realize they're there to actually instruct us and for us to obey. That We don't realize that it is what gives us peace in the presence of our God. We don't confess our sin. We don't ask forgiveness. When we turn all that around and do what we're called to do by a loving, gracious Father who's equipped us to do it and it has done it himself in loving his own enemy, we restore the beauty of our relationship, that rest and peace we have, we can experience with the Father. Amen? Now, forgive me for running a little late this morning, but what I'd like to do is actually celebrate this truth. And we can celebrate this truth by two things today. As we sing, we ask the Holy Spirit to move in us in such a way as to allow us to ask forgiveness or confess anything that he rises up in us. The second is once we've experienced that moment, we come forward to the table where Jesus, the symbol of Jesus resides and desires for us to come and join him. Taking the elements back to our seat, we'll take this together. If for whatever reason you would like prayer today, something is bubbled up, something you just, you would like prayer for something, something is going on. We'll have people up front who will pray with you. Just take the moment to do it. Let's stand and sing. I want us to hear the desperation of the mercy of God. Jesus said this, I praise you, Father, Lord in heaven and earth, 
because you have hidden these things from those who think they know and refuse to come. Those who think they've learned enough can be taught no more. And you have revealed them to little children, those who will receive it humbly. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he cried out, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He called us to himself, and in calling us to himself, he demonstrated the mercy, the grace, and the love of the Father. So when he's eating this meal, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said to his friends, this is my body broken for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he says he took a cup. And he said, this is a cup, a new covenant in my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink this, remember me. And it says they went out singing a song. Let's sing. Lord, bless this week. May we be, man, may we be children of the most high God. May we allow your spirit to flow through us. May we, Lord, see your commands for what they are. It's just an expression of your love, your kindness, your wisdom, and life. And may we, Lord God, rest in you. So thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the fellowship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have an awesome week.